What are you building your life upon? Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, said that everyone who builds their lives upon his words would be building their house upon a rock. I'm often reminded of uh, this teaching from the Lord Jesus as uh, my family and I, we drive to visit my parents. On the drive, we, we cross a bridge over a river in which there's this uh, pleasantly situated house over the, on a ridge, kind of overlooking the water. It's, it's really quite beautiful. But, but we've noticed something as the years have gone by, as we've driven by that house time and time again, we've noticed that there's erosion in the side of that ridge. And while that house is beautifully situated, it seems to be built upon a soft pile of dirt. It, one wonders if it's only a matter of time before it slides down off the ridge and into the water. We all build our lives the houses of our lives, upon something. And when the rains come down and the floods come up, we find out what sort of foundation we have. And today, we turn to study Psalm 18, and we hear David's call to build our lives on the rock that is Yahweh. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 18. You can find that passage on page 454, I believe, of the Bibles provided. Beginning with Psalm 70, last week, we began a sermon series through scattered psalms. And as you may know, psalms are poems and songs and prayers from the ancient people of God. And as we continue our study through these scattered psalms, we need to remember that the psalms are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've made it to Psalm 18, then you'll likely notice an inscription just above the psalm. It's actually one of the longer inscriptions in the Psalter. Uh, and that's kind of appropriate because what we're looking at today is actually one of the longer psalms in the Psalter. If I've done my math correctly, by verse count, Psalm 18 is about the fourth longest psalm in the Psalter. And yes, I do intend to read the whole thing. Um, after all, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, exhorted a young pastor in the city of Ephesus to devote himself to the public reading of God's word. So we'll do that today. Anyway, if you set your eyes there on the inscription, you'll see uh, that it was, it was given to the choir master, which tells us that this psalm was meant to be sung by God's people. And the remainder of the inscription gives us the psalm's author and the occasion which gave rise to writing this psalm. Go ahead and just read uh, the rest of the inscription now. Let me read it for us. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said, and then off we get the rest of the, the psalm. Now, if this uh, idea seems familiar to you, it, probably because it is. If you've ever read through the books of Samuel, then you'll know that at the end of 2 Samuel, David actually uh, kind of sings or, or uh, puts forth this psalm. Uh, this song is found in 2 Samuel 22. It's the same song that we find here. There are uh, a few modifications. Uh, the, the, the chief difference among them is that David, in this context, is, is calling God's people to join him in singing this psalm to God. David's praise is to be the praise of the people of God. And that makes good sense for as Yahweh has been faithful to David and his promises to David, then God's people have more than a good hope that Yahweh will be faithful to raise up the Messiah and the Davidic King who will save God's people from their sins. Now, since this psalm is situated at the end of David's life, where David is looking back not only upon his deliverance from Saul, but 
upon his deliverance from all of his enemies over his life. This is a song of, of loving thanksgiving to God. David invites the people of God to join him in finding Yahweh to be their rock and refuge, to even build their lives upon him. So let me just go ahead and give you the bluff, the bottom line up front about Psalm 18. I've said it a couple of times already, but here is what Psalm 18 is about. Psalm 18 is David's declaration that Yahweh is his rock. And Yahweh should be your rock too. Yahweh, he, he rescued David when he called. He rewarded David for his covenant loyalty. He caused David to rise in the presence of his enemies. And Yahweh will establish the reign of the Davidic house forever. All because Yahweh is a rock who can be trusted. This truth, it emerges in the beginning, the middle, and the end of the psalm. And I want you to see this for yourself. So go ahead, set your eyes there on the beginning of the psalm. Stick your nose in the text. Just follow along as I read verses 1 and 2. I love you, O Lord Yahweh, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of salvation. My stronghold. You see there twice David mentions that Yahweh is his rock. That's how the psalm begins. Now skip down to about the middle. See there verse 31. For who is God but the Lord Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? And in that section, what's going on there, and we'll look at it in more detail later, but what David is doing is he's inviting the people of Israel to rejoice in God's faithfulness. Now skip down to the end of the psalm and the end of the matter there. Take a look at verse 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. You see there, the message of Psalm 18 is that Yahweh is a rock of refuge for His people. That's the bottom line. So here's the outline for the rest of the sermon. Five points under five headings. David's rock, we're going to see that in verses 1 to 3. David's rescue, we'll see that in verses 4 to 19. David's reward in verses 20 to 31. David's rise in verses 32 to 45. And David's reign in verses 46 to 50. And don't worry, I'll repeat each heading as we're moving into each new section like this. Let's begin with our first point David's rock. This is what we see in verses 1 to 3. And as I read verses 1 to 3 for us, notice how David personally extols Yahweh. Watch for the use, his use of the word my in these verses. Psalm 18, beginning there in verse 1. I love you, O Lord Yahweh, my strength. The Lord Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. You see here, David, he first announces his love. And then he announces why Yahweh is lovely. You see that Yahweh is David's strength and rock and fortress, deliverer, God, rock, refuge, shield, salvation, and stronghold. David is drawing out all these attributes and metaphors to explain the greatness of God. Most, if not all, of these metaphors kind of signify or undergirded by this idea of protection and safety. These declarations concerning God are prefaced with all those possessive, that possessive pronoun, my. The possessive pronoun, my, simply underscores, right, what David said in the first three words of the psalm. That he loves Yahweh. David has claimed Yahweh as his own. And as we'll see in the remainder of the psalm, 
Yahweh has claimed David as his own. David loves because he was first loved by Yahweh. David is teaching us how immovable, immutable, and therefore how trustworthy our God is. What should our response be to this truth that Yahweh is David's rock? It should be to sing this song with David. But we, we cannot merely unite our voices with David. That would be to, sh to stop short. You see, our hearts must be united with David's heart. We too must love the Lord Yahweh because he has first loved us. It's only a heart of love for God that will say, He is my strength in weakness. He is my rock. That when all around my soul gives way, He is all my hope and stay. It's a heart of love that says, He is my fortress and only in Him am I safe from all my enemies. He is my God and I have no other. He is my refuge in whom I trust. It's a heart of love that says he is my shield from the flaming arrows of the evil one. He is my stronghold in whom I may hide. He is my salvation. The truth is that we're all looking for something or someone to build our lives on. We're all looking for something or someone to be our rock. In this world of trouble and tumult, we are all looking for safety and security and salvation. So who or what are you looking to as your rock? You might look to wealth as your rock. You, you might look to good health as a rock. You, you might look to your reason or to your intellect. You might look to the governing authorities as your rock. You might look to physicians and scientists as your rock. They'll keep you safe. You might look to your good works or the performance of religious duties as your rock. But learn this lesson from David. The only true, the only trustworthy rock of refuge is Yahweh. He is the only one who can save you from all of your enemies. As James Smith once said, How safe, how happy is the believer having God for his rock? For... He builds on a foundation that can never decay. He trusts in a stronghold that can never be taken. He hides in a refuge from which he can never be expelled. And what we're going to find in this psalm is that some people are actually expelled from their refuge. And it's all those who do not trust in Yahweh as their rock. It is only in the Lord, as David says there in verse 3, that we may be saved from our enemies. And who are our enemies? Well, the Bible teaches us that the world and the flesh and the devil are our enemies. The Bible teaches us that sin and death are our enemies. Jesus is the one who has overcome the world. Jesus is the one who grants his people the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to battle against our sinful flesh. Jesus is the one who has defeated the devil. And Jesus is the one who has conquered sin and death by his cross and resurrection. Jesus is our rock. Have you run to Jesus for refuge? That's what you should do. Like David, we should call upon the Lord Jesus. We should call upon the Lord Jesus to save us from our enemies. We should call and cast ourselves upon the only rock of deliverance. We should love as David loves. We should trust as David trusts. We should call as David calls. And we should praise as David praises Yahweh. For he alone is worthy of such love and trust and praise. 
David piles up term upon term. You see that there, don't you, in the text? He piles up term upon term to praise Yahweh. Christian, do not think that you can praise God too much. You can only praise Him too little. If we know the salvation we have from God in Jesus Christ, if we know that we've been saved from our enemies, then we know He's worthy to be praised. And in verses 4 to 19, David turns to vividly recount God's gracious rescue. This is part of how David praises Yahweh, by calling to mind his own deadly peril, and by announcing and reminding us of God's divine rescue. So let's turn and consider our second point, David's rescue. This is our second point, David's rescue. And follow along as I read. But for now, we're just going to read verses 4 to 6. And as I read, note carefully how David describes his distress. Ask yourself, how is David describing this distress? Verse 4. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. This is language that's reminiscent of Jonah's descent to the bottom, to the ocean floor. We can clearly see that David's danger was great. Death wrapped around him the the cords of Sheol, which is the the Old Testament's language for the realm of the dead. The cords of Sheol shackled him as if to, to draw him down to its depths. And as David was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down to death, he looked up. He looked up to Yahweh in his temple and he cried to Yahweh for help. Friends, Brothers and sisters, this is what sin threatens to do to us. The the wages of sin is death. Eternal death is what we deserve to be paid for our sin. Sin is enslaving it. It binds us and holds us and traps us and brings us down to the depths of despair and eventually to death. It's not for nothing that the writer to the Hebrews tells us that sin is weighty and that clings so closely to us. Sin is our disobedience and rebellion against God. It's also our subtle disposition of opposition toward God. And what verses 4 to 6 show us, along with the rest of the Bible, is that we cannot save ourselves. We must cry out to God for salvation and for rescue. Have you come to that point of desperation like David? Do you recognize your danger? Do you see that you're helpless? Will you call out to the only one who can rescue you and save you? Verses 4 to 6 show us David's danger. But here comes David's rescuer. Notice the dramatic transition there in verse 7 with a single word then. David was barely clinging to life and he cried out to be rescued from death. And Yahweh heard his cry and then, verse 7, then his rock came to his rescue. Read verses 7 to 19. And notice the shifts in the tectonic plates of the universe as Yahweh steps in to save his king. Verse 7 there. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. 
Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds were dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, as the curious souls that we are, we wonder, when did all of this take place, David? What was the event in David's life that all of this was tied to? And we need to remember that this psalm, again, it was written toward the end of David's life, reflecting back on how the Lord rescued him from Saul and from all of his enemies. And David is looking back on the the totality of his life, and he sees that time and time again, Yahweh has been his rescuer. And as we read in 1st and 2nd Samuel, if you read through those books, you'll remember that, that David was rescued by, by hiding in a cave. That he, was, that he escaped because of a, a Philistine raid. Or that he escaped because he, he cunningly convinced a ruler that he was crazy. And these to us, they, they, they look like ordinary events. But what David saw was the ruler of heaven and earth coming to his rescue in these events. It was God who plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm that David sees is the one who delivered him from Saul and all his enemies. You see, David saw behind and saw the Lord at work. And let the beauty and power of Yahweh and his action depicted in David's poetry, let these pictures persuade you that in the words of Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. David is clearly persuaded The Lord saved him. That's the simple point that David is making in these verses, that Yahweh rescued him. David is a poet, but he's also a prophet. And in these verses, he is prophesying about our Lord Jesus who came down, who drew near, and who through his death and resurrection upended the cosmos. Our Lord Jesus was angry that sin and Satan had so badgered his people that he would not stand by. No, he would take on flesh and come to earth to take the devil and death down. And if you remember the events of our Savior's death and resurrection, then you'll remember that thick divine darkness filled with the wrath of God covered His cross. You'll remember that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You'll remember that the earth shook. You'll remember that the rocks split. You'll remember that the tombs of the saints were opened. You'll remember that on the morning of His resurrection there was an earthquake. You remember that the Lord Jesus rescued His people because He delighted in them. Jesus has rescued His people from our strong enemy. 
An enemy that was too mighty for us. Jesus has come to inaugurate the salvation of his people. And he will come again to consummate our salvation. And when he comes again, he will be attended with the same anger against Satan and those who have continued in their sin and rebellion against him. When he comes again, he will be attended with an even greater cosmic upheaval. When he comes again, the cosmos won't merely be upended. The cosmos will be burned, dissolved, refashioned, and remade. When discussing this coming reality, the Apostle Peter asks a question of us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Peter says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What sort of people ought we to be, Peter asks? We ought to be those who turn from sin and trust in the rescue of our Lord Jesus. We ought to be those who call out, save us, Lord Jesus. We ought to be those who delight in Him because He is graciously delighted in us. We ought to be those who look and long for His coming and His full and final rescue from this sinful world. David has told us that Yahweh is His rock. He has told us that Yahweh has delighted to rescue Him. And now in verses 20 to 31, David tells us of His reward and the reward of the people of God that they receive. So this is our third point, David's reward. And if a rescue were not enough, David tells us that he has been rewarded according to his righteousness. Follow along as I read verses 20 to 31 now. The Lord Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the mercy you show yourself merciful. Uh, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself torturous, seem torturous. For you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. Lord Yahweh my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God. You see there in these verses, and especially in verse 24, David declares that the Lord Yahweh has rewarded him according to his righteousness. David has kept his hands clean. He has not departed from God, nor has he departed from doing God's word. Not only that, but David, he effectively promises that the Lord will reward those who live in the same way that he has lived in covenant loyalty to Yahweh. So you see there in verses 20 to 24, David, he proclaims his own righteousness. But then in verses 20 to 25, you can see that David is promising that if you're merciful, the Lord will show you mercy. If you're humble, the Lord will save you. 
Now, for those of us who have even a, a very limited knowledge of the Bible, we know that David is not, in fact, a perfectly righteous man. His hands were not clean. They shed blood. We know that David was guilty of murder and adultery. What is more, who has ever kept the word of God and walked perfectly in his precepts and paths but Jesus? Anyone who has reflected on human nature for but a brief moment knows that the truth of the Bible, the truth the Bible proclaims is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can David, with, with all seriousness and a seemingly straight face, say and proclaim his innocence and even suggest that God has rewarded him for his righteousness? We first need to recognize that David is not claiming a record, a perfect record of righteousness. Move your eyes back to verse 21. You see these words, you notice these words, I have kept the ways of the Lord. Now think for a moment, what do the ways of the Lord include? What were, what were the people of God to do each day? What were the people of God to do when they sinned? You see, keeping the ways of the Lord would include regular confession of sin and the offering of a sacrifice to make atonement for sin. As a, as a faithful Israelite, and David was a faithful Israelite, even though he had his moments of unfaithfulness, he was a faithful Israelite. He went to the tabernacle for cleansing and for the forgiveness of his sins. David knew full well he was a sinner. He confessed his sin. He even confessed his adulterous and murderous sin related to Bathsheba. We know that from what we read in Psalm 51. David's hands are clean because he went to Yahweh for cleansing. David's sins were atoned for and he was counted righteous in God's sight because he trusted in the sacrifice he offered on his behalf. David is not saying he has no record of sin in his life. What he's saying is he has been loyal and faithful to Yahweh. He has kept Yahweh's uh, commands. He's followed in covenant obedience. David was saved because he hid himself in the rock who could save him. He went to Yahweh at the tabernacle and sought forgiveness for his sins. David's pursuit of keeping God's ways, David's efforts of walking in God's law and to live according to God's righteous past was evidence that he was trusting and taking refuge in Yahweh. We could put it in the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever drawn near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. David sought Yahweh for cleansing and forgiveness. And that's what David is saying here. I've been faithful to do that, to seek Yahweh. He's saying, I've been faithful to Yahweh. I've sought the Lord Yahweh for refuge and salvation, including the forgiveness of my sin. And you should seek Him too. He saves the faithful who trust in Him. He saves those who humbly trust in Him, verse 27. But He brings down the haughty. The haughty do not trust in Him. They, they trust in themselves. David is telling those under his kingly rule, do not go that way. Go the way of Yahweh. His way is perfect, verse 30. And in him is protection. All who humble themselves and hide themselves in Yahweh will find him to be a shield. Now, now this does not mean that they will not face trouble in this life. Clearly, this psalm shows us that David faced trouble and he needed rescuing. No, but ultimately, they will be rescued from the flaming darts of Satan. They will stand victorious in Christ on the last day. Not only does David say that there is safety and salvation in Yahweh, but he reminds us, by way of a rhetorical question, that there is none like him. There's no rock like our rock. 
You see, while David speaks of his reward in these verses, while David speaks of his salvation, his main aim is to commend the faithfulness of Yahweh, of God, to the people of God. David wants to encourage and further their trust in God. These verses should encourage and further our hope and trust in God too. As I mentioned before, David is not merely a poet, but he's also a prophet, right? We read about that in Acts chapter 2 earlier, especially in verse 30. And if we think about these verses in light of Jesus, we can see how that's true. Well, it's true for David to say that Yahweh rewarded him according to his righteousness. It's true of Jesus to an even higher degree. David was not sinless. And therefore, his sins needed to be atoned for. And they were through the sacrificial system. But Jesus, Jesus was absolutely sinless. He was perfectly righteous. He had no need for sacrifice. His hands were perfectly clean. He perfectly kept the ways of the Lord. He was truly blameless. And yet, he offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice for the sins of the people of God. God the Father dealt with Jesus according to His perfect righteousness. And so, three days after His death, God vindicated Him, as Paul says. God vindicated the Lord Jesus three days after His death and raised Him from the dead. David trusted in the sacrifices that pointed forward to Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. And we trust and point backward to the sacrifice that Jesus offered for us and for our sins. Jesus is the how and why God is merciful to sinners like us. When we hide ourselves in Jesus, our rock and redeemer, His perfect righteousness becomes our righteousness. His blamelessness is credited to, to us. By His Holy Spirit, we are purified and cleansed. And so, because of Jesus, we have the same hope of reward that David and the ancient people of God had. We have that same hope made more certain that God will reward us on account of Jesus' righteousness. And we show the world that we have received that righteousness as we live out that righteousness and remain faithful to God for the glory of Jesus. Our reward for taking refuge in Jesus is eternal life with Jesus. So, so what's the application here? It's really simple. Hide yourself in the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be your shield and your salvation. Put your hope wholly and completely in Him, and He will be your reward. David not only rejoices in his reward, but he also gives praise to God for his rise. Having been rescued and rewarded, David is amazed that Yahweh would exalt him. This is our next point, David's rise. This is what we find in verses 32 to 45. Follow along as I read Psalm 18, verses 32 to and 45. And see if you can discern kind of the trajectory of David's rise to power by the strength of God. Psalm 18, beginning there in verse 32. The God who equipped me with strength, uh, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set my set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand has supported me, and your, great, your gentleness has made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. 
and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not, not known had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. We began with David's rescue from the depths and death there in verse 4. But by the time we reach verse 45, David is enthroned in the presence of his enemies. He has been made, you see there as verse 43 says, he's been made the head of the nations. And while David certainly declares that he pursued, overtook, and turned back his enemies, while David certainly announces that he has become the victor by thrusting his enemies through, by beating them to fine dust and casting them out like mire in the streets, the truth is, is that he gives all credit and glory to Yahweh for his rise to power. It was Yahweh who equipped him with strength and made his way blameless, verse 32. It was Yahweh who secured him on the heights, verse 33. It was Yahweh who trains his hands for war so that his arms could bend a bow of bronze, verse 34. It was Yahweh, you see there, who supported him and made him great, verse 35. It was Yahweh who made his feet secure, verse 36. It was Yahweh who made David and made his enemies sink under him, verse 39. It was Yahweh who made David's enemies turn their backs and flee before him. Verse 40. So, so yes, while David was engaged in battle, personally engaged in battle, it was ultimately Yahweh who gave him the victory. Yahweh was ultimately responsible for David's rise. David's rise and reign described here ought to remind us of the rise and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, this scene in this verses is one of triumph. And what did Paul say? of the Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul said that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, Paul said that Jesus must reign until He's put all of His enemies under His feet. Here, as we contemplate David's battles, we might be wise to remember our own union with the Lord Jesus Christ and the battle that we wage in Him. Here we would be wise to remember that according to Ephesians 6, we must be strong in the Lord Jesus and in the strength of His might and put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. David's rise and his victory over his enemies prefigured Christ's rise and victory over our enemies. And now we must continue to hold the ground that Christ has won. In the words of Paul, we must stand. We cannot sit. We must rise and stand for battle. And we must not be moved. We must personally, as David did, we must personally wield the weapons that our God has put into our hands for battle. 
We must put on the belt of truth and speak the truth. We must put on the breastplate of righteousness and practice righteousness. We must put on gospel shoes and take the gospels to our neighbors. We must take up the shield of faith in Christ as our defense against Satan's darts. We must put our heads inside the helmet of salvation and hide ourselves in Christ. We must take hold of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we must wield God's Word against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we must pray at all times. If we are to have victory in our spiritual battles, as David has had victory in his physical battles, then we must personally use the armor and armory of God. Brothers and sisters, reading God's Word and crying out to God in prayer seems so basic, but they are part of God's means of causing us to rise in victory over our enemies. David both personally battled and he declared that his strength came from Yahweh in the battle. David had victory and Yahweh had victory through David. Both are true. And that dynamic is at work in our spiritual lives as well. Beginning in the fall, I would love for our congregation to take on the challenge of reading through the New Testament together, the entire New Testament. I think we can do it in four months flat. And I've done the math, and that means we simply need to read one to two to three chapters a day, three being the most. And that even provides us some opportunities to have catch-up days, like if we've missed. And it doesn't even take Sundays into account. But imagine, imagine doing this, reading God's Word, reading through the New Testament. Imagine grabbing a cup of coffee with another member of this congregation and talking about the same passage of Scripture that you both read that day. Imagine challenging and encouraging one another from the same passage of Scripture. Imagine talking about what you're learning as you read through the New Testament. What, what themes are you seeing emerge together as the New Testament unfolds? Imagine talking about it with your small group or community as you have fellowship around God's Word or even small talk. Imagine spurring one another on to love and good deeds from God's Word to battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Prayerfully consider whether or not this might be a blessing for us to pursue as a congregation. And notice carefully there in verses 44 and 45, notice how they conclude. They conclude with fear, don't they? Just especially look at verse 45. Foreigners lost heart, and they came trembling out of their fortresses. Right? What, did, what did David say in the very beginning of the psalm and all throughout? Yahweh is his rock, his fortress. He's safe in there, and nothing can pull him out of it. He's not in danger in that fortress. But notice, any other fortress is not safe. These foreigners, they lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. They're afraid of David and his might. As it turns out, they're not safe in their fortresses. As it turns out, the rock in which they were trusting cannot keep them safe from God's king. And here's the startling truth about the Lord Jesus. If you fear Jesus today, while you have life and breath, then you have nothing to fear on the last day. If you fear Jesus today, while you have life and breath, you have nothing to fear on the last day. If Jesus is your rock and salvation today, then you've got nothing to fear. But if you will not fear the Lord Jesus, if you will not follow Him in faith, if you will not submit your life to Him, if you will not hide yourself in Him, then you will certainly fear Him on the last day. 
you will come out of your rock. Whatever it was you were trusting in, your wealth, your health, your reason, your intellect, governing authorities, physicians, scientists, performance of religious duties, whatever your rock was, you will come out of your rock. And on the last day, you will come out of your rock trembling. Trust in the Lord Jesus so that you don't tremble before him on the last day. Consider how the Apostle John describes Jesus and that day of reckoning. This is Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus we're reading about. John continues in verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you do not fear the Lord Jesus today, you will fear him on the last day. And to an even greater degree than David, Jesus is the one who has arisen and been given the name that is above every name. And he is the one who will soon arise from his throne to subdue the nations once and for all. Fear him today and you will not be afraid of him on the last day. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he lived for you the life that you now lived, a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Believe that Jesus died for you on the cross offering the sacrifice that was necessary to atone for your sins. And believe that Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, defeating your enemies of sin and death. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Fear Him in faith today. Like David, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We've already begun to really tiptoe into the final theme of Psalm 18. So we should go ahead and fully immerse ourselves in it. In the verses which conclude this psalm, we're given a triumphant picture of David's reign. That's our fifth and final point, David's reign. Read verses 46 to 50 now. Psalm 18, verses 46 to 50. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord Yahweh, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. You see here, David, he praises Yahweh for all that he has done. He has been his rock. Yahweh has exalted David. And so David, he exalts Yahweh, the God of his salvation, in praise. Yahweh gave David vengeance and victory over his enemies. Verse 47. 
And then in verse 48, we see David, Yahweh rescued and delivered David from Saul and all his enemies. For all this, David promises to praise Yahweh and to make his name known among the nations. He has brought salvation and showed faithful covenant love to the one he promised an eternal kingdom. It's not by accident that David concludes his psalm by mentioning his offspring forever. Here, David, he expands his gaze beyond his own present reign. And he believes that Yahweh will be faithful to the promises he uttered to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, Yahweh promised David in covenant love that a son, that one of David's son would sit on his throne forever and rule. David's rock is Yahweh. David's rock secured David's rescue. David's rock is David's reward. David's rock brought about David's rise. And David's rock established David's reign. And will see to it that the reign of David's son, David's greater son and Lord, Jesus, takes place. You may not know it, but in Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul takes verse 49 of our psalm, takes verse 49 of this psalm as prophetic of God bringing Jews and Gentiles, the nations, together under the reign of David's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke confirms that this is what Jesus would accomplish in Luke chapter 30, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, when he writes that Jesus would reign on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom would have no end. It, it's staggering to think, is it not, that we are enjoying experiencing and expressing the truth of Psalm 18, part of the fulfillment of Psalm 18 today. Here we are, thousands of years away from David and thousands of miles away from where he wrote this psalm, agreeing with David that the Lord lives. And in just a moment, we will bless our rock, the God of our salvation in Psalm. Do you know what Psalm 18 calls for you to do in response to its message? If you want to not only be a hearer of God's word, but a doer of God's word as well, then what should you do? You should hide yourself in the rock that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can rescue you. He is the reward worth receiving. He is the only one who can raise us up over our enemies to reign with him. And you can be sure, you can be sure that if you build your life upon the rock that is the Lord Jesus Christ... When the rains come down and the floods come up and when the winds and the storms of this life blow against you, you will not fall. For the Lord Jesus, He lives and He is our rock. Bless Him as your rock and build your life upon Him. Let's pray that the Lord would give us grace to do that now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.